about years later, I went back on business to the same town. And I went out to dinner with a very conservative white guy. And I thought I was going to get a bunch of Jim Crow and Cracker from him. And we were just talking about economics and stuff like that. And he looked at me because he knew I was a Yankee that had lived there, you know, a carpetbagger type. My family had run the largest factory in the region. Um, and he looked at me and goes, who do you think I attribute most of the economic growth in the South to? And I figured it'd be some Southern senator or Southern janitor, uh, uh, governor or something like that. And he looked at me and says, Martin Luther King. And he said, even though my family was adamantly opposed to, to desegregation and the civil rights movement at the time, myself, as a conservative Southern white, attribute almost all our economic growth to Martin Luther King teaching us to quit wasting our time trying to keep our neighbors from getting ahead and spending more effort trying to get ahead ourselves. And I never forgot that. That was probably 20 years ago. And when people ask me why I don't give up on the other side of the spectrum, the political spectrum, I remember that guy. I remember him like it was yesterday. And then the other one I was thinking about was you guys were talking about Sherman, because I've, I've walked all those battlefields. My dad spent 25 years as a military guy himself, five years active in World War II, and then 20 years in the Guard and Reserve after the war. And so he had me walk every single battlefield. Plus we had family in them. We had family in Gettysburg. We had family in Antietam. We had family in uh, the whole uh, peninsular campaign down up to Appomattox. And we went through Chattanooga and then down into um, North Georgia and saw the campaign that Sherman had there and then visited the cities he, he spared, you know, uh, Savannah and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the other one, Savannah and then uh, uh, yeah, Charleston. And seeing how, you know, and, 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 and Sherman was, he, he loved the South, but knew how to defeat it. He knew he had to destroy the economic backbone of the South to, to actually win the war. You know, Grant was going to grind them up North, but they had to take away the people that were feeding them. And that was in Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina. So anyway, the point was, is that um, looking at that battle, my dad always told me, he said, the reason we never had an insurgency amongst the Southerners was because Lee saw what Sherman did and knew it would be done everywhere if there was an insurgency. So prior to signing the, the peace treaty at Appomattox, the surrender, he, he was asked by his generals to go into the mountains and keep the fight you know, going on as a guerrilla war. He said he wouldn't do it. And a lot of uh, historians to this day attribute that decision to having seen what Sherman did to Georgia. And I will listen to your guys' input. Because I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. I would love to answer, but I have to remove a tick from one of our doors. I would love to answer, but I can barely understand what you guys are talking about. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. The, the, um, if, if someone wants to, wants to reply, uh, please wiggle your tail or move your hand. Uh, otherwise, well, okay. Um, Christ, Christoph, I cannot see your full name, but Christoph, go ahead. And... Everyone, please remember, at the end of the day, even though we love our American friends, we are talking about Ukraine. I know here in Virginia, we are about to celebrate 4th of July, and I'm a little curious on what's about to happen soon. But going back to the Civil War real fast, I've actually visited where Pickett fought in the Battle of the Bulge here in Spotsylvania. So a little, I found that a little bit interesting. But other than that, I know that I know with our country, we have tend to use a little bit of scorched earth tactics, but not on the level of Russians and what they've done and along with the Soviet, uh, unless other uh, than in some of the battles of World War II. But other than that, if the Civil War hadn't really gone the route it did down with Sherman's March to the Sea, I really think we would be living in a different world. Okay. Thank you. Ben, let's have Luca, because Luca, as an Italian who is now having the pleasure of all the freedoms of the United States of America, should be more in praise of Sherman than anybody else. Luca. Um, yeah, well, happy fourth to my American uh, friends and, uh, well, calling from Rome now. My question was about um, something that I just read about um, the some agreement that was reached at the G7. And the Japanese PM just reported some information. Kishida-san mentioned about um, the G7 agreeing to effectively form uh, um, a 
cartel, if I might say, to um, force the price, the market price for the Russian oil to be discounted 50%. Um, then I don't know how they enforce it with third parties, but um, I'm sure you guys heard about it. I'd like to hear from Krishna um, Zaksal, our uh, investment banker and maybe finance or whoever else. Do you think that this seems to be creative, but do you think it, it can work or what's the theory behind it? What's your opinion? I've looked at it and I still can't make heads or tails of it. And I don't think that regulated markets and uh, mar- and price suppression work. You have to find ways of uh, actually declaring the counterparty um, unattractive. And that's the state sponsor of terrorism. Without that, you have no legal ground. Yeah, it looks weird to me too, yeah. Thank you. Okay, so Luca, you're sure you don't want to spend 10 minutes talking about the, um, the, the wars of uh, the 1860s in Italy? Because I'm... All up for it. There's no reason we, we're the only one having to, to bear this sort of history lessons. No, I'm joking. Uh, Vic, please go ahead. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, I have one point, and I haven't uh, heard it being mentioned in the last like two days. Uh, I just uh, spotted it in the, some of the Russian forums, and I'm just wondering if it has been covered or if you have any comments. And the, the point is about like the Russian government obliging planning to oblige businesses to work for the needs of the army and apparently the bill has been so submitted to the state Duma which will oblige companies to fulfill the orders of the needs of a counter-terrorism and other operations and people to work nights and weekends if needed. Uh, has this been covered, commented? It seems almost like some sort of like a war economy or something like this or not, not really but uh, yeah, thank you. It's totally the equivalent of a war economy. It's exactly almost a copy of uh, legislation that was passed in 1941, with, of course, the difference that apply. So, um, yeah, it's very difficult to understand what's going on, uh, at least from my point of view. Um, and um, it, it, fits the, it fits the pattern of, um, of a government that is slowly take, re- realizing that it has bit more than can chew, and that is trying to overcome the barriers of budgeting. Uh, by forcing people to work for you, you can set the price, and by setting the price, you you can uh, push back the real cost of of the war economy on someone else. And that fits with several other moves that have happened recently, which are designed to uh, move the cost of of the war away from the fiscal base. It's as uh, in in many ways, it's as if they were trying everything to be able to claim that the regular Russian taxpayer and the regular Russian whatever has not been directly impacted, because that's the sort of um, numbers that economists are looking at. But uh, in every other way, they seem to be they seem to be trying to collect uh, as much money as possible. Uh, so you're right, it fits um, the move towards a, a war economy, and it also fits the, the, the sort of shadowy way they've been doing it so far. Uh, does the yeah. answer suit you? Yeah, or thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I just sense again on, on this forum, I see that a bit of like panic and agitation, like the entrepreneurs or like more techie tech people. They, yeah, they really hate this sort of an initiative and I really understand it. So, yeah, thanks. Ben and Vic, can you say more about what you mean by war economy? I mean, I, I read something here and there, but uh, maybe, you know, if you guys can elaborate a little bit more about, uh, you know, what it means and uh, practically what's happened. Vic, you want to begin? No, please go ahead. Uh, well, the war economy, it's a concept that was uh, uh, per, uh, um, best um, organized by the, the Germans during World War I. Uh, and it's a way when the state um, takes the control of the economy as a whole. Um, it goes from um, ordering the number of calories that the average worker is going to eat um, to, of course, uh, assigning which resources will go to the building, to the construction of what type of weaponry. So it is the um, it is the the sort of socialization or communization of um, of the economy, but 
not with the aim of creating uh, a new history or whatever else. The, the point is just to build more guns uh, and and um, collect more people for the war and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the most evident way of thinking about it is to 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 think that there are going to be more factories building more stuff, uh, um, or at least that's going to be the, the number one aim of the government. But they also need to pay and organize for all this and uh, to, to basically reorient the civilian economy towards the um, what the all the well the army on the one hand and the factories that are directly building the guns do need and this thing but it never works and it never works oh no i'm not centralized economies don't work and what you're highlighting of course the war economy as we define it in the west is essentially the arsenal of democracy proving all the totalitarian systems completely utterly bereft of any sense and that is the united states coming out of the depression in the 1940s because they build everything more they build it better faster harder and the war economy there was a successful one and it was a capital i'm not saying i'm not saying the country what i'm saying is that uh at least in my understanding, a war economy is a, is a socialist, socialist, uh, socialist economy designed for the, for the production of, uh, um, for, the, for the wedging of a war as a, as a whole. Uh, quick point of order. Uh, if you don't have a question, please, please uh, drop down for a second. Uh, we, we have a number of people who want, would like to, to join and can't because we have a full house. Um, so thanks a lot. And what was I saying? Yeah, no, the the yeah the the, the German example of World War One is very interesting because it, it is actually the one that they, there was one person paying a lot of attention to it, and it was Lenin because Lenin was in Zurich right next to it, and he really took notes. And what he took away from it is this can be done. So the 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 USSR and the the Soviet economy was actually designed as a copy of the German war economy. Um, got a little bit lost there. Uh, I, I hope I answered the question. There's many, many, many hands. Um, I don't remember who was first. Um, Mike, Michael W., please go first, and then we'll go to, well, then we'll go to Gunther, Phil, Leonard, and I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. No problem. Well, thanks, and and you know, happy Fourth to everybody. I, you know, it's, I think it's a you know a universal holiday where. Uh, what, what it means because we founded the nation based on self-government and, and, and ideas, not on not on blood and soil. And, and I think that's very important. Um, the, the thing, uh, just to back to a little bit to you know, some of the talk about the Civil War, I, I, I live about a half a mile away from um, Gettysburg and uh, I used to live in Atlanta near Kennesaw Mountain. And, and I can tell you, you know, there's a lot of memorials to people who fought to deliberate people. Um, uh, I, I will say it's a very important day the fourth of july for us uh and he's right it takes a while for reconciliation um i, I would say that there was some um you know th there were people who were against uh the settlement of the of the civil war they were called the klu klux klan the first iteration of them uh and it took a while for that uh, to happen but uh, i did want to just say a couple quick things one we're actually having some ukrainian food for our fourth of july feast i'm barbecuing some um we got a recipe for some uh pork pork kebabs so we're going to give that a shot we're looking forward to that my wife is making some gluten-free pierogi uh she's got celiac disease so um you know i can report back on how that turns out but we're really excited about that and um i did have a question for the group as a whole has uh, anybody heard anything I, I saw something about uh something on fire at one of the uh, towers in moscow like one of the uh, towers in the business district. I didn't know if uh, anything has uh, been reported on that or if y'all have uh, discussed that, but uh, thanks. We have another fire burning, Portland. Yeah, um, looks like another ammo depot went up at Snizny, which is in occupied Donetsk Oblast, uh, confirmed on firms. It is burning really hot. Um, uh, the video show lots and lots of propellant streamers 
So I think it's a rocket ammunition dump. Um, yeah, less than an hour old. Um, burning very, very violently. It's on firms. Uh, uh, I had like a dozen people send me the same video uh, at the same time. Uh, it's very telling. Uh, lots of very clean, white, high albedo smoke, uh, which is consistent with uh, butadiene acrylonitrile. Uh, lots and lots of sequential, very bright, very intense flashes, uh, consistent with fairly large high-explosive warheads cooking off. Um, I don't know. Oh, shit, there is a lot of stuff on fire down there. I don't figure out what that is. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, yet another ammo dump goes up. And what it, do we do when an ammo dump goes up? Well, we drink? drink, but my liver can't take it. I swear to God, guys, you're going to kill me. And we're going to part so, this so... Uh, conversation just for a very brief moment because we have very, very good news to announce. And I welcome Alex Backus here. And I want all of you to look into the nest. We made it and you made it. And Alex, to you. Thank you, Walter. I just want to appreciate and give a huge, huge um, voice and um, huge um, deepest appreciation to all of the listeners of the Walter Report. We launched our campaign on June 28th, shortly a few days before um, 1st of July, which is uh, Canada Day. Um, and I'm super, super happy to, to announce that we have uh, like oversubscribed um, by 104%. Um, and uh, it's all fully raised. So 30,000, just, just over, just, just actually just under 32,000 is uh, uh, in the bank in PayPal. We're going to be transferring that over to the single contractor who's licensed to sell the CAT, which is the combat application tourniquet in Canada. And uh, it's, it's getting shipped to Poland for further distribution into Ukraine. Um, just a little sort of trivia uh, towards the campaign. Funnily enough, we actually had equal 300 amount of donors with the average donation of $104. The maximum donation uh, was $3,300 by an awesome, awesome lady. And the median donation was $51. So this is all uh, based on the amazing small drives and the constant um, support that you guys uh, and gals and, and, and everyone um, ha- has been sort of sharing and, and supporting Maria Aid and supporting Walter Report. So huge, huge, huge thanks. 300 donors even is, is a very sort of coincidental and funny metric because it's a thousand uh, tourniquets uh, at 30,000. So it all works out. It's meant to be. So thank you again. Thank you, Alex. And again, you made it happen. It's because of all of us here and everyone who contributed, even if you haven't donated, we are thankful because you spread the message and please continue to spread the message. It is important. Uh, It's just one fundraiser and we are more than happy that we made it with your help, but there will be many more. The thing is far from from ending and today is a day of celebration. Uh, Again, it's one thousand combat application tourniquets which is potentially and very likely 1,000 human lives saved. Every single human being who contributed, who helped, actually helped in saving a human life. So again, we are uh, expressing our gratitude to all of you who helped, to all of you who conveyed the message, who spread the message. Please continue to do so. Please continue donating. Maria Aid, MariaAid.org they're translating and uh, conveying your help into a tangible thing in Ukraine on the ground close to the front line and they're saving lives in Ukraine. 
So please continue doing so. And tonight we can celebrate. And further on tonight, we're going to have a very special event. Uh, we're going to start at 8.30, a special military operation. So please stay put. But for now, it's a time for celebration and time to basically acknowledge all the contribution that you made here at Walter Report and uh, everyone who, who helped in one way or another. So thank you. Yes, and, and thank you again. I wanted to just even outline that we recently delivered 1,175 uh, 1, individual first aid kits, and it's already deployed to the front line in Kharkiv, in Mykolaiv, and uh, in, next to Kherson area. So those are already in play, and we're excited to be able to do this again uh, and send another back. Yeah, this time it's going to be CAT tourniquet. Uh, the previous time it was SOF. Uh, both are stellar products, highly coveted, highly needed in Ukraine. And uh, in many cases, again, as we emphasize, it's a difference between life and death. When someone receives a wound, a shrapnel wound, and is hemorrhaging from his extremity, good, reliable tourniquet, like SOF tourniquet or CAT or CAT tourniquet is crucial. It's important to stem the bleeding and transport the casualty to the to the hospital to the next stage where professional specialized help is delivered. But to to essentially to save the life, the thing has to be present. And today we made it possible. These tourniquets will be delivered to Ukraine and will save lives. So again, thank you to everyone who contributed. Spread the message, uh, share and retweet the link which is in the nest and uh, continue supporting Maria aid again thank you to all of you keep pushing keep pushing people there's more things coming and remember that he who saves one life saves humanity and on which day of the week do we have that message monday morning exactly and again don't forget that 8 30 or so it's gonna be something special tonight cannot drop the cover yet but it's worth waiting and uh it's going to be come by you're really you're really exhausting all the europeans you know well uh, there's so much i can do at this point yeah that's what we have to that's the price we have to pay this is going to cost us half a point of gdp half of europe is going to be sleepy tomorrow morning anyhow um reda you you had a question oh sorry walter can we go on or yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, um, just uh, one final remark. We had the uh, ladies here from uh, Hospital Earth Combat Medic Battalion. Earlier last month, I reckon it was uh, Katarina and Anna, and they emphasized how crucial these things are and how important that it's a high-quality product because, because of its importance, uh, literally like saving a life relies upon that and uh, unfortunately some of these people are not with us anymore because their bus medical evacuation bus of hospitalers uh, it got into accident as it was evacuating people from the combat zone and uh, one of the ladies unfortunately died and their uh, surgeon orthopedic surgeon trauma surgeon had his wrist amputated and many of them are being treated right now, but they will return and a number of them already returned to the front lines to save lives. And with little donations, with uh, things like we managed to pull off today, finished today, one sound in combat application tourniquets, we make their work easier and we increase the chances, chances of survivals for everyone who is... Uh, basically wounded on the front line or even in the city or a town when a Russian rocket lands and hits. So let's keep pushing it. Let's keep contributing. Uh, we are on in the long run, but today is a moment to celebrate. It's a testament to, to a little effort and a testament to how little thing accrete and become something bigger. And this bigger makes a difference on the ground and save lives. Thank you. Yeah, thank you to everyone who contributed. And uh, Reda, you were yeah having a question, I guess. 
Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Excellent. Well, first of all, congratulations on uh, on the fundraiser for the case. That's really great. Um, I have a bit of a complicated question, and I, I first want to start with a disclaimer. First of all, I'm a random European that happens to live just outside of Kiev at the moment because of business reasons. Um, I am not afraid of nuclear war because I call bullshit on all these threats, and we can't live our lives based on any threats from bully. Second, the question I'm asking is not some kind of lame or veiled attempt to give credence to any of the justifications for the war there, which is being raged by the Russians in Ukraine. Um, and thirdly, the last uh, disclaimer, I am not a military person and I'm not a scientist and certainly not a rocket scientist. So with that out of the way, let me get to, uh, to the question. So like many of you probably, I spend my life on YouTube watching videos about very advanced scientific topics, even though I have not even basic knowledge of the science in question. And one of the topics that got me really interested, I think about two years ago, was hypersonic flight and hypersonic missile. And one video caught my attention in particular, which I unfortunately am not able to find anymore, the reference. Um, it talked about the development of hypersonic missiles and how basically the Russians and the Chinese seem to be ahead of, uh, of this development. And um, it talked about the danger of them not actually being the effect or the use of them, but the problem they caused in terms of the response. So I'm not going to do the, the video any justice, but the basic premise of the thesis was the following. There is a set amount of time in place today in case of uh, a decision that needs to be made for a retaliatory attack that is uh, based on the detection of ballistic missiles going off. And if I recall this correctly, it took a certain amount of time before uh, this even reached the president. And all in all, you were talking about 15 to 20 minutes to make a decision. And the video was talking about the fact that the problem with hypersonic missiles is that the time that you are allowed to make a decision as a country breaks all existing processes because it takes so little time to make a decision that in doubt you have to assume that the missile is actually directed towards you because of now you can't tell exactly at what point it's going to come down and what trajectory is going to follow. <clears throat> and therefore, in case of doubt, you are now more likely to um, send a full salvo back because you assume that basically you have to trigger now the protocol of mutually assured destruction. So what I was wondering are a few things. First of all, what is the state of technology to intercept these things? One. Two, are there... And, uh, and I'm sure they are, but uh, I'm just not in that domain. Are there any discussions at an international level of how in the future we can assure security protocols and agreements that are not going to increase the likelihood of a response to a false positive? I hope that question is making any sense. Can I attempt a, an initial reply here or start some discussion about this? Look, you're always welcome to speak, especially okay. when I'm drunk after drinking two glasses to celebrate. Okay. The okay. Large okay. So we'll talk about the technology later. Uh, let's start from from these. Um, I, I read about these. Those are called game theoretics um, approaches about responses. Um, I. I don't buy it very much for hypersonic, and I'll tell you why. You know, a full primary retaliatory strike, okay, which means when you send out, you know, your missile, only makes sense when you see um, lots of um, missiles flying at you. If you see one or two missiles flying at you, they might hit some important military bases and cities, and that might suck, but it's not going to disable your full ability to to counter-strike. So you don't really have to decide right away, right? In all, it's only when you're seeing 20, 50, 100 missiles coming at you. And, you know, as we stand with hypersonics, now we're going to the technology, right? Th this is something more to do with the future. It's questionable whether anybody has one functioning 
deployable hypersonic missile. Like China and Russia are making lots of noise about it because, well, they like to brag out how powerful their technology is. I, I think there might be some strategy behind that and the West kind of They have nothing. Ex exactly, exactly. Exactly. I mean, they might have some testing device, right? But like, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's deployable. And even if they have one or two deployable, the game theoretic thing only happens, only happens to work if you think that they have hundreds of those deployable and then they all are flying at you. And even in that case, the game theoretic thing, which means, okay, now they disable all our missiles. So we need to shoot them before they disable it doesn't take into account the so-called, uh, and this is very dark stuff, by the way, but it's game theory they studied like this, like formula. Like, it doesn't take into account the secondary strike. The secondary strike are the stuff that nobody knows is there, nobody sees, like submarines or things that fly all the time and you don't know where they are because they're like stealth. And so it means that even if you're disabled disabling all the military bases they could do a primary strike there are still submarines there are still like b2s that are flying and you know where they they are well, you don't know where they are so that analysis to me doesn't stand the test of reason and certainly doesn't stand the test of time as it as as it is now now in terms of technology i agree with with axel i think here there is some some Secrecy, right? It's a little bit hard to, to say where things stand. But yeah, it's true that the Chinese and the Russian made a lot of noise. But in practice, you know, like, is it noise? Do they have to some technology on how far ahead they are, if at all? What I tend to think is that, you know, I don't think that the West, you know, I don't think that our alliances, I don't think the NATO, I don't think the United States with the level of like technology that has would just be sitting on the you know, us, so to speak, I'm fairly certain that we have things that, that, you know, like they don't know. It's like what I call the quote unquote UFOs, you know, from Area 51 kind of thing. It's kind of like a provocation the way I say it, but like, I'm fairly certain that we have things, right? That we don't need to go out and brag about it because we shouldn't, we can keep them secret. I mean, if you think about it, then I'll shut up. Is that, you know, in 1940, Three, I think the Japanese had like some research like program and all their top scientists, they kind of like were asked, you know, you know, can a nuclear weapon, you know, be built? And they basically said, yeah, whatever in 50 years. Right. And or something like that, right. Something ridiculous. Right. So now, of course, at the time, the United States was not going around and said, yeah, but we have the Manhattan project and, you know, we have a timeline of two years for doing it. Right. So. I would be like highly surprised that this whole like hypersonic is a problem now. It might become a problem later on, but like I'm fairly certain that uh, you know I can poke lots of lots of holes in in that narrative. Every single hypersonic test run by the orcs and uh, by the Han Chinese so far has faltered, even in the lift stage or in the guidance stage, the initial guidance stage. That's what it is. Most hypersonic or uh, reasonably hypersonic missiles so far are reasonably unguided. That's the biggest issue. If Thanos, one of our friends here, were to be here, we could talk about and reminisce about the tests the United States Navy did at a very early stage in that regard. And what they developed rather than creating their own hypersonic missile system was a defense system against unguided or badly guided systems. And that's how you create innovation. There's no fear about what the Russians believe, or no, sorry, want to project and fear monger that they have because they don't have it. Otherwise, we'd know it. But thank you, Reda. Can I just add to that? Uh, Reda, if you don't mind, there's a lot of hands. Uh, we'll come back no to you. We'll go back to you. Don't, don't, don't go anywhere. We'll, we'll come back to you. Uh, Marcus. Uh, Hi, uh, is my audio okay? It's quite okay. You sound quite Finnish, but otherwise it's quite okay. <laughs> Yes, I am. Uh, so, uh, actually, this might be a topic where I could actually offer something about this hypersonic thing. Um, so, I'm not very well versed with the, uh, the uh, game theory aspect of this, but, well, <clears throat> let's, uh, first, uh, let's say the usual caveats that actually we obviously have hypersonic weapons and have had like 
since the 60s because basically ICBMs are hypersonic. But what anyone ever means when they say hypersonic is guided hypersonic, which is uh, not in space, so in atmosphere and guided. And uh, the use case, as I'm, I have understood in aerospace industry, is that um, what kind of motivates um, major military uh, players like USA in this, that when you play these uh, highly advanced and, in my opinion, highly speculative uh, war games, let's say uh, USA against China, and if you assume that basically everything China claims they have is true, then they would have these these hypersonic assets, then you have these layered air defense and missile defense systems. And basically they function so that to, to, to execute air operations, you have to take out the air defense. You take the air defense out with missiles, but for missiles, there is the missile defense. And for that, there is like ballistic missile defense. And you have these layered on layers upon layers of defenses. And then the hypersonic is something that actually could peel off the first layer off. And then something else can peel the second layer off. So, so they, in in some <laughs> very esoteric war games, they actually change the the outcome of those war games quite a bit because you can freely take the most advanced missile defense off because of some flight characteristics of these these hypersonic missiles if you can actually maneuver them in in atmospheric conditions. But that's like way up there. It's a uh, like we can destroy the world without hypersonic missiles and we have had the ability for a long time i also have seen the video which uh, presents this option of, of this this scenario that uh, the the decision time is, is lowered significantly with hypersonics but i don't think that's a, actually a realistic issue and uh, and one thing I, I should add is that in fact if one would want to have a very very uh, fast conventional strike capability one could also use ICBMs with conventional warheads. Why nobody does that is because of kind of this gentleman's agreement that ICBMs are not used for that, so we don't trigger each other's ICBM defenses. And that's, by the way, why why US uh, prompt global strike didn't end up using their ICBM forces for uh, conventional strikes, because the, there is a major risk of, of triggering like nuclear escalations, because everyone's scared of those. And that agreement was born out of basically uh, it's it's a gentleman's agreement that ICBMs are for only for nukes. It's not written in some some international treaty. Okay, I think. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Um, uh, Leonard, I think you you had a question, and yeah, you you had a question. You had your hand raised at some point, but we didn't get to get to you. Oh, okay. Thank you, Ben. Uh, actually, I my question came up. Uh, from the conversation just uh, uh, a few minutes ago, um, and it kind of changes direction a bit. I don't know if we still want to go there, but it was a specific reference to uh, our, our American friends and the July 4th celebrations, and specifically with reference to what uh, Dryfly had said regarding uh, uh, William Sherman, General Sherman. So I don't know if we want to pursue that any further or what. The only Shermans I know and recognize landed on uh, Normandy's beach uh, on June 6th, and otherwise I know no other Sherman. Okay, well, that's that's fair enough. Uh, anyway, he, he, uh, Dryfly had uh, uh, said some fairly uh, interesting things about the importance of uh, of, Sher of General Sherman, and I, I just wanted to endorse that from a Canadian perspective. But uh, also... Just to note that uh, General Sherman is actually William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, and Tecumseh uh, is the name he's known by in Canada uh, because uh, Tecumseh was actually a an Indian um, famous Indian chief of the Pont of the Shawnee who uh, fought with within the War of eighteen twelve, and he, he originally out of Ohio, but uh, he was engaged in. Uh, many of the frontier wars, and ended up fighting with the with the Canadians and the British in the War of eighteen twelve, and he actually why uh, why why did you say why why did he fight for Britain? Oh, because the uh, he had been pretty much continuously at war more or less with the uh, with the American expansion into the West, and he had been fairly instrumental in organizing the. 
um, the, the Shawnee Confederacy. Uh, it, it had a couple of different names, but uh, regardless, he was a, he was very instrumental in who organizing. Giving, who was giving the Shawnee protection to acquire rifles? Oh, of course, the British. Uh, okay. The British. Uh, so he wanted of, the money and the guns. Well, he, he wanted the money and the guns, but he ended up actually giving his life for Canadian ground. <laughs> so that was the point I was I was getting to. He actually he actually participated actively in the. Uh, when the British captured Detroit in in the War of 1812, and then uh, it, it, the various battlefields moved back and forth, etc., and he finally. Uh, I, so the Detroit Lions are still playing Canadian football today. I'm sorry, the Detroit. Uh, the well, Detroit, Detroit Lions are still playing Canadian football today. Uh, no, not not yet. They're not. Although I do have significant family in Detroit. <laughs> and, I'm just asking because if they were so successful in Detroit, have they continued to capture it or did they? Right? Oh, they did. Yes, they did. The British did capture Detroit for the best part of a year, I believe. I'd have to look up the exact uh, time and game. But, uh, nine and a half months, yes. Yes, nine and a half months, correct. Thank you, Axel. I'm amazed. That's, that's excellent grasp on North American history there, my friend. He was there. He was there. You're not going to manage to. He fought in the in the war of 1812. <laughs> Leonard, Leonard, <laughs> Leonard, Leonard, Leonard is great. Okay, Leonard is great. that's hilarious. The war of 1812 into a slightly more provocative statement after we had Canadian Day, uh, and we're now going into the Fourth of July. Yes, indeed, and we certainly. Uh, I, I fully uh, celebrate the 4th of July along with our American friends. And as I mentioned, I, I have uh, some uh, fairly significant family connections in, throughout Michigan and in Detroit. So uh, it's. Of course you do. Always... Of course you do. <laughs> Will you be donating Moosehead beer to them so they finally have something to drink? Well, Moosehead and probably Schooner as well. Uh, Schooner, uh, Sleeman Schooner out of Nova Scotia. That's another excellent brew, and, and from my standpoint, in any event. Um, but just to close out on Tecumseh, he he did end up dying in the with fighting with the British in what is now London, Ontario, uh, Upper Canada at that time. And uh, there's still uh, many uh, geographical sites in London. That's London, Ontario, of course, that are that honor Tecumseh, and uh, I just thought that would be maybe of some interest to our American friends. I'll leave it at that. Given the fact that you've just highlighted that one of the biggest ever heroes of freeing America from yeah, how should we put this, from sedition, actually followed in the footsteps of someone who fought it. That's interesting. Yes, indeed, so, and thank you for your insight, Axel. I'm just sitting here, you know. Don't forget, I've been traipsing around Gettysburg, Chattanooga, Antietam, and um, all those wonderful battles, which were not wonderful at all because they were the foreboding of whatever came then in the trenches of 1914 and onwards. If only David would remind me of the deep heart of the American soul. Oh, I just had one... That, uh... Brings up one further brief thought here, Axel. If you if you want to explore Gettysburg for one more minute, sure. Okay, and given that today is the anniversary of the Battle of Little Round Top, uh, and Pickett's, as you mentioned, Pickett's Church, uh, critically important events. But uh, I just wanted to mention the great uh, philosopher um, general or philosopher warrior out of Maine, uh, Colonel. Joshua Chamberlain, who led the 20th Maine uh, Regiment at Little Round Top, and effectively, in the in the defense, the, and the changed brilliant, the war, changed the entire war and changed the entire Battle of Gettysburg as well. And just a tremendous, a tremendous American hero that uh, um, I, ju I just can't give enough uh, reference to, to the great Colonel Joshua Chamberlain and and a, a philosopher and scholar at Baudouin College in Maine as well. So uh, he's also very near and dear to the hearts of many Canadians. So and I, very, I very, very dear to the hearts of those who are here on this uh, panel, definitely.
100%. Thank you, Axel. I'm a lucky man at 2.22, waiting for the special operation in North America. I want our listeners to know that at least I don't know what I, I don't know what it is either. I'm really I really want to know what it is. Um, I hope it's going to be good. I've worked up a few people to tell them to listen, uh, and they will have my head if it's not half as good as I promised. So, uh, but I'm sure Walter will de deliver. Walter always delivers. Um, and um, yeah. don't hesitate to come and join us um, to talk about hopefully not Gettysburg, but at this point I will take even Gettysburg. And um, yeah, please come along here. Oh my God. Please get your hands together for the one and only, the rabbi of the space, the Canadian. I the just called him, dude. but he preceded it. In the, in the Rosh Hashiva of Walter Report. How's it going, everybody? Are we getting ready for this special military operation in Washington, D.C.? You have to tease people a little bit more. Uh, we know so little. All right. Well, we're, uh, this is where everyone uh, needs to uh, save the date and time. A couple hours from now, now is the time to retweet, click. We have a very, very interesting episode today on the walter report and i apologize i uh, i have tested positive for COVID, and strangely i have lost my all my taste and uh smell so i'm now in the car because i went into the uh, my wife's cabinet and i started spraying you had taste i started spraying my arm with different uh perfumes and colognes and now apparently i stink but i can't smell it and i think it's hilarious so i'm in i'm in i'm in a quarantine in the car right now um so i apologize if i sound bad <clears throat> this is what's going on our friends who are longtime listeners of walter report you might know them um alexander vinman ben Wittes. Uh, these are pretty popular people in the united states for many reasons very educated very sophisticated and very shortly we are going to be having a walter report live on the ground being transmitted through youtube live stream and this twitter this twitter account right here this twitter space is going to be voiced over it's going to be projected along with pictures of ukraine onto the russian embassy that's right this is your chance to speak to the russian ambassador in washington dc we will be speaking as a panel and we will be literally talking uh, loud enough, uh, it's, it'll be, I'm not going to explain the system setup, but uh, everyone on the Walter Report on the speaker's channel will be speaking uh, to our friends in the Russian embassy. Uh, and there will be other places that we will go throughout the evening. Uh, please stay tuned. Let people know. Uh, special military operation is in, uh, that's a joke, obviously. Um, there's, uh, the police know about it and all that good stuff. Uh, but the Russians don't know. So if you're a Russian uh, bad baddie listening in, better call your friends in Moscow and let them know. Um, we're going to be reporting live uh, from uh, a Russian diplomatic mission in the United States with our friends uh, Ben Wittes and Alexander Vindman. Uh, there will be a uh, projector screen with slides from the Walter Report and Maria Aid. Uh, and we invite you all to retweet because this is a pretty awesome situation. Uh, literally, we are going to be um, speaking truth to power. We will be talking directly to the uh, possibly the security staff at the uh, Russian embassy. I doubt they're working on a Sunday afternoon. I doubt they work much at all. But um, after that, we will go to another place where someone will be listening to us because, uh, you know, just might be someone's house. And uh, we will be uh, showing dozens and dozens of slides collected from Walter Report with uh, the genocide that Russia is conducting in Ukraine and uh, exploits of the Ukrainian armed forces. Maybe as a gentle reminder to the, our Russian friends in Washington that they should advise their leadership that they should get the heck out of Ukraine and uh, not come back. So I think uh, if everyone's excited about that, I'm, I'm very excited. Maybe a big hand for those at the Walter Report who helped organize the slides 
and um, and for our friends who will be promoting this, this is this is big news. It's a big deal, and um, and it's going to be a great time. So just uh, please retweet it. Let everyone know. And uh, it's uh, it's we're we're going to be literally. Our, we could even be on the news if CNN and all those other companies go and and video tape it. Um, it'll be the Walter Report talking on on uh, through the speakers to our friends in the Russian embassy. So hope, I hope you're happy about that. I know I am. Heliana, go ahead. This is fantastic. I it was obviously kept secret from people involved with the Walter Report. And um, I was just going to ask how long has this been in the works and how many people were involved in getting it together? Uh, it is, uh, I don't want to say how many people, but it's been in the works. We've just kept it under our hats. Uh, it's going to kick off very shortly, uh, but uh, it would be great to let people know so that we can uh, get people on board and promote it. So this, this space should be popping uh, everyone should be heading over here, but I'll message you, uh, Heliana, offline about that. But if there are any other questions, feel free to come on up. Um, the special military operation, I think um, if you know the the organizer doing it on the ground, friend of the show, this is not the first time it's been done. So someone asked me, is it too early? I don't think it's too early. I think it's fine. Um and uh, if anyone has anything to say, please feel free to step up and let us know. What, what will we talk about at the embassy? Anyone? Nick, Donnie, David, what could we discuss? You're talking about what, what can we discuss in terms of slides? No, when, like if we're, if we're going to be we're going to be having our regular Walter Report talking about the factors and the effects of what's going on. And we're going to be doing it in front of the Russian embassy. So I think symbolically we should maybe talk about international law, right? And um, the lack well, of... Sure. I think war crimes comes to mind. War crimes, there you Definitely go. Something I'd probably raise. I think um, barbecues, cook-offs, maybe. What? No, I lost you there. Uh, cook-offs, uh, you know, like the big, big, um, big barbecues that they're having in the nuts right now. Russians oh, burning. Go ahead, David. I think Donnie was alluding to uh, images of tanks burning off. I don't know if that's what you mean by barbecues. Um, my question was to do with Dress codes, uh, obviously as an amateur, I don't know if we're supposed to all wear the same thing and turn up at the same place, but if I'm not going to be at the place where you're broadcasting from, then I'm going to dress up in a long coat and dark spectacles and a hat because this is as close to a spy jiggery pokery as I'll get. So my question is to do with the dress code. And then second question, if we should discuss topics, perhaps some of the most impactful discussions that we'll have here in the space, uh, to date and maybe just have like a short list 12 13 of the best conversations or topics or whatever they were guests whether they be exclusively ukrainian or the subject matter experts but there's a rich there's already a rich body of work that should be tapped and this seems like a perfect opportunity to fire off some of the greatest hits uh, dress code aside yeah agreed i think if you're in if you're near washington dc it's not new york it's washington so i'm not sure if you got a fast car i mean the wind you ah in the wind fair enough so i think it's great i think it's so clever and uh, what's really awesome about it is it's uh well i think it's the first time we're going to walter report live on location live 